Hi there, welcome to the manuscript. I'm Breno Barreto, and in this podcast we delve into the intersection of writing and the development of technology products. Every couple of weeks, we talk to people making a difference in technical writing, instructional design, UX writing, content strategy, and anywhere else there's someone thinking about content in digital products and the tech industry. Today we will talk to Mark Baker. He is the author of the book Every Page is Page One, which was originally published in 2013 and has since become an absolute classic in the content strategy field. Mark, welcome and thanks so much for being a guest here at The Manuscript. Well, thank you very much. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's really nice to talk to you. As I was saying, your book was a great inspiration for me and for many people that work in the field. So let's dive right into it. Uh, in the book, you say that the way readers find and use content is different in the context of the web. And we should be creating content with that specific difference in mind. So could you explain the main concept behind this peculiar way people use content on the web and, and, and why we content strategists should be paying more attention to it? Sure. Um, one of the, the most important things I think about this, though, is that the way that people use content on the web isn't actually new to the web. Um, the, there's a book that I cite quite a bit in Every Page is Page One, um, by uh, John Carroll called the Nuremberg Funnel, which kind of originated the idea of minimalism into the tech writing community. And this was a book, the research was done in the 80s, it was published in uh, 1990. So long before the web, uh, it was done basically using books. Um, and they studied in a lab the way that people used um, the manuals that they were given uh, to do things like learning how to uh, how to use a word processor. Um, they did some uh, tests on using the Apple Lisa, the predecessor of the Macintosh. And they discovered that people used information in a very goal-oriented way. They didn't sit say, oh, okay, I've got a book. I will sit and read this book. And when I have finished reading the book, and I will go and do what it says. That's not how it worked. Um, people, by and large, engaged with the user interface. And they came at the task with their idea of how this was supposed to work, um, which you know, was often wrong, because a lot of these people were novice computer users. Um, and, and when they got stuck, they would you know, find the book, and they would start to flip through it, trying to find something that might help them. Um, what they found weren't always procedures. They, they would take conceptual material and treat it as if it were a procedure. Um, in many cases, if they found a procedure, they wouldn't believe the procedure because it didn't match their mental model of things. <laughs> and so they were skipping back and forth in the books. And one of the experiments that this led to uh, with Dr. Carroll's team was they started to use cards instead of books. So they would print um, one you know, instructions for one task on a card. And they would put a stack of these cards by the, the workstations um, and then run the experiment again. And one of the things they went, they did at the end of the day 
was they took each of these piles of cards from each of the workstations where people had been working, and they looked at the order the cards were in. And they were all in different orders. So people had been using information in really different ways, and in different orders based on what they were currently interested in. Um, so people's desire to work that way didn't suddenly emerge with the web. Um, you know, Dr. Carroll's experiments pretty clearly showed that that's how people always wanted to work. And you know, and the, the the expression RTFM, read the fine manual, has been a staple of uh, technical communication um, for many, many years before that. So we, we've known for a long time that people don't sit down and read the book. It's not how they've ever wanted to use technical information. Yeah, so the web comes along and it is the perfect environment for this way that people are already working. And that's really important. The web isn't changing the way we work. It's enabling the way we always wanted to work. Because the web lets you search for whatever your current problem is. And there's all kinds of resources out on the web. You know, YouTube has all kinds of videos on how to do specific tasks. And they're just about how to do that task. There's no book there. There's just a video on how to change your tire or a video on how to make an omelet. And you get there by searching for it. Um, if you look at, um, uh, in, in the, more in the technical space, if you look at Stack Overflow, which is this vast collection of questions and answers on all kinds of programming topics. Um, people would come there, they'd ask a question or they'd find a question that had already been asked. Um, and they would, they would get answers to just that specific question that they'd asked. Again, they're not reading a book, they're not looking at a huge body of information that's been organized. Um, they, they are searching, they're finding a search result that sounds close to the problem they're trying to solve, and they're getting a small piece of information that is relevant to that. So that's how they worked before. It was just hard before. Now the web is making it so much easier. Um, I see. Uh... The problem is that technical communication formal technical communication hasn't still has not fully adapted to that um, there's still an awful lot of material being organized like a book um, and the problem with information organized like a book is that if you open it up to page you know 113 it's going to take you a while to get oriented to what's going on um, Page 113 wasn't designed to be the place where you entered. But if you look at all those um, Stack Overflow questions, if you look at all those YouTube videos, every single one of those is designed to be the first place that you look, the first place you land when you come in from your search. Thus, every page is page one. Yeah, that's awesome. You mentioned Stack Overflow when I was thinking, 
whenever I'm playing a developer trying to build something for the web, I'm constantly surrounded by doubts, of course, and I'm all the time landing on Stack Overflow pages, which most often do answer my questions. And uh, it's nice to think about it from this organizational point of view because it doesn't actually have a table of contents, right? But the answers are there and I usually land on, on the right answers. So I remember from the book that you said the web is built from bottom up, unlike books which are built from top down. Is this what it means to 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 make a, a page work like like page one? I mean, do you make a page work like page one like uh, by building it with a bottom up perspective? Well, I, I, there's two parts to this. One is of course how you design the page itself, um, but then the information architecture, which is how you collect all these pages together. Um, that is. That happens bottom-up on the web. If you notice, no, you don't, oh, very rarely do you go to a website. There are some exceptions like uh, Amazon or Facebook. Um, though notice that the pages you get on Amazon or Facebook are customized to you based on all the information they know about you. They don't have a single static starting point. But if you're just trying to solve a problem, you don't go to a website. You type a, a search query, you know, a, 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 you, you type something into Google, you press OK, and it gives you a, a bunch of pages, not websites, but pages. So you're going right into the middle. And if you think about Wikipedia, which is, you know, one of the things that comes up probably more than anything else when you do a Google search on anything, is you'll get a Wikipedia article on that subject. Wikipedia isn't organized. Wikipedia has, you know, is designed for you to come straight to that individual page. But there's more to bottom-up information architecture than that, because if you think about Wikipedia and you're reading through an article and it mentions something you don't understand or something that's related, it's a link. And so you can surf through um, information in Wikipedia looking up stuff that you um, that you don't understand, that you need to understand to, to read the article you're currently reading. Uh, if you think about information on YouTube, YouTube is always offering you a bunch of related information. It's not quite um, the sophisticated linking of Wikipedia because it's hard to do that in a video, but it's offering you related material all the time. And so you can get totally lost, right? Just surfing through from one thing to another. Um, but these are about relationships. And, and so each page, each page one that you're looking at is embedded in this or has embedded within it a whole hub of relationships to things that are similar to it. So every page is not only page one, every page is also the hub, the starting point for the next leap that you're going to take. Um, and, and that's where you know, the fundamental change in information architecture is you don't stop, uh, start at the top and work your way through down through multiple layers of menus to finally get a page. You search, you get a page. It has a bunch of links. It has a bunch of, re of related um, page links or video links or whatever it is. And you follow those and you go on one step to the next to the next. 
So that's a bottom-up information architecture. And again, it's a much uh, better uh, support in that for the way people actually work because they don't know 100% in advance where it is that they are going to go. They don't, you know, what is they're going to want to learn, what they're going to want to do next. I see. Yeah, makes sense. And uh, in the book, you present the concept of topics, which is related to that, I think. And you say that every page is page one topics are presentational ones designed to work out of sequence and, and out of context. How does one deal with the problem of balancing complex information architectures, which will probably need building block topics, and the need to make every page self-contained and, and ready to be read as a, as a unit? Um, yeah, this, this is, is an interesting problem. Um, and, and I think a lot of it comes from Ditter and its, its emphasis on content reuse. Um, it is, in many ways, it, it's a separate problem, right? It's, it's it, from an information architecture point of view, uh, for most tech com, not all, but most tech com applications, um, the every page is page one topic is the appropriate unit to create. Now, um, and an every page is page one topic ought to give you the information you require in one topic um, because that's simply you know the more efficient way for someone to, um, uh, to to pick up the information they need now obviously there's going to be links to related topics because you can't put everything in um, or it would become too cumbersome um, but if you then want to do content reuse below the level of the every page is page one topic, um, that becomes a different implementation uh, problem. Um, I'm not entirely convinced that that's worth doing for most applications. Um, I hear a lot of people who've kind of committed to the reuse strategy, eventually finding out that they just don't have or can't do as much reuse as they thought they were going to. Um, that's not to say that it isn't absolutely appropriate in some cases, but you know, to, to say that reuse is the pinnacle of, of Techcom efficiency in the general case, I, I don't think that's supportable. Um, it has this nice property that it's easy to make to attach numbers to it, which makes it easy to put on a slide, which makes it easy to get management approval to spend money. Um, it's hard. This has always been a problem in Techcom. It's hard to attach numbers to the value of what we do and reuse has always been this way that you can go, oh, we can reduce content by 30%, and that means we reduce the cost by 30%. Look, a hard number. Um, sometimes it turns out to be true. Sometimes it turns out not to be true. Sometimes the overhead that is incurred in doing that reuse eats up any benefit you had from it. 
So, um, reuse strategies have their point, have their their place in this, but my view, it's it's people spend way too much time and effort uh, and devote far too much of their architecture to that um, when they should really be, I I believe, focusing more on. Um, the reliability of the topics that they are creating. Being able to make a topic do the whole job that it's supposed to do. Um, that is something that Structured Writing is a huge help with, and that's the other book that I have out uh, called Structured Writing, Rhetoric and Process. It's uh, from XML Press, just like every page is page one. And I really, in that mm -hmm. book, look at that side of the problem. Reuse is one of the things that I talk about in that book, but you know, it's not, in my mind, for most applications, it's not like the first thing you should be looking at. Okay. Yeah, I look forward to, to read the second book. I, I haven't yet, or, uh, unfortunately. Uh, and, and many times I, I, I get myself thinking about uh, how to really do it, you know, how to really make every page, page one. I, I totally see the, the, the value of the strategy, the importance of it, and how it makes uh, navigation better and, and uh, brings value to the content. Uh, but I think many times I, I look at the content that I'm, that, that I'm creating and, and I, I struggle a little thinking, well, how, how does this translate uh, into practice, you know, how do I really uh, get this this page of this help center, for instance, that I'm building, and make it self-contained, make it uh, a page one. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if it's possible to <laughs> to to give a, a recipe. Maybe, probably not. But uh, uh, do do you get that 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 kind of, of question often? Oh yes, I mean. It, there are, uh, you know, a number of difficulties about doing this. Um, one is that our tools aren't well designed for it, um, and that's been a persistent problem. That's part of the reason why I wrote the the, the new book, the structured writing book, was to talk about how you can build a tool set. Um, not not specific technical instructions, but but the general concept of what a tool set uh, to do this kind of thing uh, should look like, um, because it's building you know, things like building all those links um, and things like uh, disciplining the process of defining topic types and getting that repeatability into your content, so that you know you're developing best practices about how to write a particular kind of topic and coming up with rules about what should be in each topic of that type. Um, and again, we're talking presentation topics here. Um, so they're complex and they're specific to the material. It's not like saying everything is, is either a concept task or reference. Um, never found that a particularly useful concept. It's more about um, if I'm writing a recipe, then, okay, I need an ingredients list and I need a set of preparation instructions and I may need some 
um, nutrition information. And if I'm working with a specific pu publication, like I might need a wine match for everything. And I wanna make sure that I get everything that I need from all of my contributors all of the time in the same form, the same order. Um, so that A, that's really reliable for the user. They're getting the information they need every time instead of writers constantly trying to figure out how to do it over and over and over again. Um, you know, I think there's far more value in reusing the research that goes into figuring out what users need than there is in, in just reusing little bits of content. Um, so there's all of that. Um, and then there's, there's just our habits of work. We're not used to thinking in terms of creating all of these smaller pieces. Um, we, you know, we, we, and, and there's even a sort of, um, there's an attachment to the book. And of course, <laughs> I mean, the irony of this is I wrote a book about this, um, about saying that we should be writing fewer books. Um, but a book is the appropriate thing for making a, a long, complex argument like that. It's not the appropriate thing for telling you how to boil an egg or how to change a tire. Um, that requires shorter content. Um, but you know, we just haven't fully developed the habits and the, um, the organization to support how to do that. I mean, even things like how to do technical review. Right, you, we have the old technical review was right near the end of the of the project, where everybody's in crunch mode. We suddenly dump a book on the developer's desk and the product manager's desk and say, "Yeah, can you read this through and tell us that we got it right?" Um, you know, which is not a terribly um, efficient way to do things. But we need new technical review processes where we can review each of these um, topics individually. So it is tools, it is processes, it, it all of that. Um, and it is, is thinking about information architecture in a new way. These are, these are you know, big changes in the way we work. So it's, it's not necessarily gonna come just automatically overnight. Of course, yeah. So, so I'm, I'm wondering, for instance, uh, building a content uh, style guide or a framework for the team with those kinds of concepts in mind might be a useful tool, uh, do you think? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you need you need guidance. As I say, I, I, I'm a big believer in the repeatability of what we do. That often when you just tell someone to go away and write a book, uh, write a programmer's manual, and they go away and they write stuff down, they write stuff down. Um, they don't consistently get everything that needs to be said. They don't say it in the same way each time. Uh, one of the big things, uh, one of the, you know, the seven principles of every page is page one is every page is page one topics conform to a type. This is important when somebody is gonna dive right into that piece of information. No prologue, nothing. They're gonna have to establish their context. They're gonna have to you know, have a good idea of who you're expecting this user to be, uh, and, and exactly what they're going to need, uh, and that should repeat. If I've got, you know, if my uh, product has 20 functions, 
the same information laid out the same way for each topic on each of those functions. That's important stuff. And so you need guidance for that. Now, in, in the new book, in, in the structured writing book, you know, I talk about how that guidance can either come in the form of a style guide if you're using unstructured methods, or a lot of it can get moved into the structure of your content itself if you're using structured methods. Um, but either way, um, you know, the structure, the, the, the creating the topic type that's specific to your material, that's specific to your user needs, uh, this to me is vital to doing this successfully. Yeah, no, I can sure see the, the value. It's, it's great advice. Uh, oh, let, let me move to a more uh, philosophical question, if I may. Okay. Uh, at some point, I, be I believe in, in an article in Tom Johnson's uh, blog, uh, I think so, uh, you write that the, the, the power to organize content has passed from the creators of content to the consumers. And uh, this is a concept that, that is present, uh, I believe, in your writing and also in other books that I've read and I admire, such as Everything is Miscellaneous uh, by David Weinberger. Yep. Uh, so considering that uh, scenario, how do we should go uh, about our job of organizing content for an audience that will organize it themselves? And uh, being more specific, how does a content strategist justify the existence of his or her role in an industry where the user seems to ignore grand organization initiatives in favor of miscellany and non-hierarchical structures or maybe even chaotic content structures? Right. Yes, and I, I will say, I mean, I, I recommend everybody read uh, Everything is Miscellaneous. That's where I got that concept from. Um, and David Weinberger has a couple of other books on, on, on the same subject. Uh, which I recommend very, very highly um, because, they, yeah, they do deal with these kinds of same ideas but at a much higher philosophical level. Um, mm -hmm. He, he um, this, Everything is miscellaneous and then um, – I'm trying to remember the name of the other one. doesn't matter. Go and look it up. Um, uh, but yeah. he has uh, this, this concept of information organization, which is um, – um, I'm, 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 I'm missing the exact word, but it has to do with, um, I, I think the phrase is something like, uh, take everything, filter it later, something like that. That's not right, but it, it, it's in that range. And his idea was that if you think about when we use Google, we search the entire internet and then we filter the result. Mm -hmm. So you ask the universe the question, don't go and find some authority and say, okay, now I've found you. Now I'm going to ask you my question. It, it becomes, I'm going to ask the universe. I'm going to do a Google search. And then I'm going to filter what I get and decide who to trust out of all the results that I get. Uh, which is you know, kind of disturbing to content strategists. Content strategists, I, I have said... And it's only half jokingly that the discipline of content strategy was created to combat this uh, the power of, of, of the user in, in this uh, environment to try and capture them and keep them instead of letting them um, uh, 
uh, you know, wander all over the web. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think as a content strategist, you have to decide which side of this you are on. Are you trying to win back power from the user um, and force them to stay in your content and to use your content the way you want it to be used? Um, or are you going to say, I recognize that the power belongs to the user, to the reader now, and I am going to create my content in a way that supports the reader who is exercising that power as they wish to exercise it. Um, and, you know, that, that's a pretty serious question because it, it is fundamentally going to shape how you do content strategy. Um, it's no secret that, you know, which side of that I'm on. Every page is page one is about empowering readers to do that, um, to, you know, saying, okay, you're in charge. Here's the stuff that lets you work the, the way you want to work. Doesn't try to capture you and keep you and hide the world from you, but it lets you work the way you want to work. And my view is that the content strategy that tries to capture the reader and not let them go fundamentally isn't going to work terribly well. Um, at least not for most companies. You could argue that Facebook does a really good job of it. Um, but for most companies that just don't have a big enough hold on the, the, the user's attention for that to work. Um, and so if you're frustrating the user, they want to work a different way than the way you're trying to make them work that isn't actually going to pull them into you. So my view is, this is, readers have the power, recognize they have the power, and give them content in a form that supports them using that power. And that's going to give them a reason to come to you because they're going to be then able to comfortably use your content when they want to. Um, so I know. Uh, on that question, I think, you know, as a, a content strategist, you've got to decide which side of that question you're on. Yeah, no, that's, that's very, very interesting to think about it this way. I mean, it's, uh, hard to apply this kind of thought in our daily jobs, but it's, I think it's really important to think about it. And just as, as information for people listening to us, I believe the, the, the book, I just Googled it. That's, that's why I know, I believe the book you were talking about was too big to know. And ah, uh, yes. the line, I believe, yeah. And the line, I believe is include it all, filter it afterward. That's the one. Yeah, just Googled it. Yep. Okay. That's great. I, I have to read that one too. I, I haven't yet. That's a really good book. That, I, that's the one I think every, every content strategist should read that book. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I think David Weinberger has an approach to our field that is really high level, even philosophical, and it's something really hard to find. So uh, great recommendation for sure. So Mark, another issue that I think you might have some interesting thoughts about. Almost 10 years ago, you already said that users prefer short information snacks. 
And we do seem to be prioritizing even more these days content that is made in really short formats. Small snacks of text, small videos. Some years ago, I remember people used to say that videos should be no longer than three minutes. Then it suddenly became one minute. Now it's probably 30 seconds, I don't know. Uh, why do you think this is happening? Do you deem this shrinking movement as something positive? Or should we even be thinking in terms of positive and negative? I think we have to recognize that reading content is only part of how people learn. Um, if you're learning to use a technology, um, experience with the technology, uh, actually doing work with it, the interface of the technology, um, the, the nature of the task that you're trying to do, um, the people you're working with, all of these are sources of learning. Um, and you know, it seems like the pattern of learning for most people is if I have something I can work on, if I've got buttons I can push and I can see what they do, that's how that's going to be my primary means of learning. And I'm going to go to written content or to other people when I get stuck. This is one of the fundamental ideas in minimalism, right? Um, that you have to support error recovery, that people will learn by pushing buttons until they break something. And then you're going to have to show them how to fix it, how to get out of the mess they've got themselves into. But people learn by doing. So technical content is supplementary in its role in their learning. Um, and it's they would always rather get back to working with the machinery and trying to figure out how things go. Um, now, they've got to make some allowance for different learning styles and different levels of confidence um, in that. And I, it's not never going to have everybody be exactly the same on those things. So that argues for shorter pieces of content that stand alone uh, and are easier to find. And, and by being easier to find, I really what that means is easy to identify as the thing you were looking for. Uh, you can't actually make a piece of content easier to find in in the sense that you don't control the search engine that's doing the finding. You can make it easier to identify as the thing you are looking for. So if somebody's panning for gold, you want your gold to be as shiny as possible so that they can see it in the bottom of the pan. So that's really the part that, that you know, content, uh, the, the architecture of your content plays in findability is being easy to recognize. Um, so small pieces, easy to recognize, so that when somebody gets stuck in their primary activity of trying it out, um, the content is ready to play the role they want it to play, which is to get them back on track again. Now, there's obvious exceptions to this. There's some machinery that you're never going to let people touch and play with. So, you know, it's different rules if you're dealing with nuclear reactors or, or you know, airplanes. Um, but then again, those things have, you know, it's not ever the book leading that either. It, they have 
specific certification programs, apprenticeships and all that. So you've got to look at the context in which the learning happens. In a regulated industry, it's different from a consumer industry where somebody just buys, brings the thing home and starts playing with it. Um, but then if you look at things where there isn't a set of buttons to push, you know, it's, it's more of a philosophical discussion. Um, it's more about learning an idea or a concept like every page is page one, then the trends are for longer content. Uh, if you look at blog posts, people are finding that it is the longer content that gets more play because with an idea, you will do more reading and less fiddling because there's nothing to fiddle with. But if you're doing technical reading, you've got a machine or a piece of software to fiddle with. And so it's more fiddling, less reading. So you, you have to look at the context um, to determine whether long or short is the right thing. Um, and that's just it's a matter of its role in, in the total learning experience that the, that the person is going to have. Yeah, that's a, an interesting way to think about it. Sometimes when I'm thinking about, for instance, UX writing, which is becoming such a, a trending topic, uh, well, we are actually talking about content for digital products, for interfaces. And what I tend to think in these cases is, is it still reading what people do on these interfaces? I mean, I think that if we think of it as something with a different nature from reading, it makes it easier for us to create content for for this kind of product. Yes. And one of the interesting things about this, and this is going all the way back to John Carroll, is that there are many people who are convinced that the way they learn is they carefully sit down and read the book before they touch anything. John Carroll found a number of people in the lab, you know, in these laboratory situations, who said, well, because the, the way these, these labs worked is they, they had the people working on the things and then they had the experimenters going around observing them and occasionally asking them questions. And people would say, oh, well, okay, but this is going to be really boring for you because you're going to see me sitting there reading this book from cover to cover before I do anything. And they said, okay. Okay, that's fine. We'll we'll just watch you read the book, and this and the result was that nobody did that. Within a few minutes, everybody who said that's what they were going to do had found something they thought they could execute, and they went to the machinery and they went and worked on it for a long time before they ever came back to the book again. So even the people who think that they're meticulous readers, they're not. We got a machine. You want to play with it, and that's how people work. No, it makes total sense. And uh, since we were talking about uh, making good content so it gets found in the web, uh, I, I believe that an, an invaluable skill today when, when so much content is created every minute is is that to, to make content get found. Someone who yep. can optimize a piece of content or that it depends a little less on paid media and may rely more on its uh, intrinsic value. For me, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a great asset for, for any company. And do you think this is actually a skill that can be learned? I mean, 
what does it take to to be a content professional with expertise in making content that is easier to to find uh, i don't know if uh, this is actually a skill you, we, we should be uh, trying to to find in the market you know well it's interesting because of course what one fundamentally depends on is google's ranking algorithm what are they what is Google find for your search query and how does it rank various pages? So, you know, the way you win at that game is to be highly ranked for whatever your subject matter is. And so you get all these people who basically um, make a career out of search engine optimization, trying to figure out how to fool the algorithm to get their content to the top. And you get a bunch of really, really smart people at Google trying to defeat this and make sure that it's actually good content that comes to the top because it's obviously in Google's best interest that the actual best content should come to the top uh, because that's what keeps people coming back to the Google search engine. And if people stop coming to the Google search engine, then Google's in trouble, right? So Google has um, you know, a considerable motive to make sure that it's the good stuff that gets delivered. And so um, there seems to be an increasing body of opinion now that says good content is good SEO. Don't worry so much about, I mean, you know, do the things that Google tells you to do, um, which are fairly straightforward, but focus on creating really good content and, and being consistent about it. Um, which brings me right back around to this idea of repeatability. Um, it's why, you know, I, I say every page is page one topics conform to a type. You figure out in detail what does need, what needs to be said about a particular subject, particular, uh, you know, whatever, what do I need to say about the functions of my piece of software? Um, what do I users particularly need to know? Uh, and then you map that out. You give guidance to that. And you make sure that it's done consistently. The nice thing about that is once you do it consistently, you're not, you can do testing. You're not, you're not just testing each individual piece of content by itself, which is incredibly expensive. You're testing the pattern. You test that pattern. You get a known good pattern. Uh, that's really serving your users. And then you can start to create content that you have a high degree of confidence is good and it's doing the job. And I think that's probably the best SEO that you could possibly do. You know, creating consistently good content based on well-known patterns. Um, I, I don't see how you can get any better long-term SEO than that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Do you think you, Mark, uh, in your career, uh, as a as a tech writer, uh, among other roles you had in the, in the tech industry, right? If, if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. uh, do do you think you were able to apply these concepts of uh, every page is page one, which were probably already forming in your mind? Uh, so, do you think you were able to apply them in your in a daily on a daily basis? I mean, how far do you think a tech writer can go in influencing the the structure of his or her company's content? towards a more every page is page one style, you know? I think 
you can go a long way in the right direction. Um, there are some aspects of it, though, that are much more difficult to implement, particularly as an individual. Um, I think, you know, as, as you've said, the, the, the book has, has become fairly well known in the field, and that, I'm sure, has to help with somebody who goes in and wants to do that. Um, there are still, you know, the tooling available to us is not ideal for it, but um, you know, there are, there are tools that you can do this sort of stuff with, wiki-based tools, uh, for instance. Um, I don't know if you talked to Christopher Gales about this, but I worked with Chris for quite a while. Um, and, you know, I, I, the, the kinds of things that they're trying to do at Splunk, um, using wikis uh, and every page is page one topics there, uh, you know, you, you can do a lot. Um, if you're still in a frame maker shop, it's going to be more difficult. There's going to be things that are harder to implement. Um, but I think the, the key is, um, you know, to, to focus on the way users are actually trying to use your content and to focus on repeatability. And if you can get those things into your process, um, no matter what your tool set is, then you can go a long way down this road. Um, and then hopefully, you know, over time, um, there will be more and more tools that make it easier and easier to do, and you can go further down this road. Um, but I would say, you know, anybody in any situation can think through how their content is actually going to be used, um, and they can think through how the repeatability of what they're doing. How can I make sure that I understand what the user needs and that I'm doing that consistently each time? That'll take you a long way. Great, yeah. And uh, after seven years of the publication of the, of the book, do you believe its concepts are still valid in today's web? I mean, uh, where do you see the content heading in this new decade if we may look a little to, to the future? I don't think that user behavior has changed any. I mean, the fact that people were doing it um, when they had to do it with, you know, bound paper manuals, and they were they were completely using the paper manuals in a way that manuals weren't designed to be used because they wanted to work this way. I think that tells us this is fundamental human behavior, um, and, and there's a lot in you know David Weinberg's books and others. Um, and you know, a lot of other research I cite in the book that says, this is basically how people learn. This is how they want to access and use information. So that isn't going away. Um, the web is going to be with us and the web is an excellent medium for this. Um, so, uh, you know, this is the way humans want to work. The web is an excellent medium for it. Um, I don't think either of those things are going to change anytime soon. Um, we still have an issue with uh, with appropriate uh, tooling and, and processes in many organizations to actually implement it uh, as fully and as easily as we should be doing. Um, but fundamentally, no, this is, this is uh, I think, a very long-term thing. It's not about 
um, any kind of short-term adaptation to any one particular technology. It's This is the way people want to learn when they're trying to use stuff. Yeah, awesome. Well, Mark, thanks so much for joining me today. It's been a really rich and deep conversation, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to The Manuscript. If you'd like to suggest a guest for future episodes, send us an email at themanuscriptpodcast at gmail.com. We'll be back in two weeks. See you there.